0: Section Thirty Eight of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books, edited by Charles W. Eliot. Introduction to the History of English Literature by H. A. Ten. five three different sources contribute to the production of this elementary moral state race environment and epoch what we call race consists of those innate and hereditary dispositions which man brings with him into the world and which are generally accompanied with marked differences of temperament and of bodily structure they vary in different nations naturally there are varieties of men as there are varieties of cattle and horses some brave and intelligent, and others timid and of limited capacity, some capable of superior conceptions and creations, and others reduced to rudimentary ideas and contrivances, some specially fitted for certain works, and more richly furnished with certain instincts, as we see in the better endowed species of dogs, some for running, and others for fighting, some for hunting, and others for guarding houses and flocks. We have here a distinct force so distinct that in spite of the enormous deviations which both the other motors impress upon it we still recognize and which a race like the aryan people scattered from the ganges to the hebrides established under all climates ranged along every degree of civilization transformed by thirty centuries of revolutions shows nevertheless in its languages in its religions in its literatures and in its philosophies the community of blood and of intellect which still today binds together all its offshoots however they may differ their parentage is not lost barbarism culture and grafting differences of atmosphere and of soil fortunate or unfortunate occurrences have operated in vain the grand characteristics of the original form have lasted and we find that the two or three leading features of the primitive imprint are again apparent under the subsequent imprints with which time has overlaid them there is nothing surprising in this extraordinary tenacity Although the immensity of the distance allows us to catch only a glimpse in a dubious light of the origin of species, the events of history throw sufficient light on events, anterior to history, to explain the almost unshaken solidity of primordial traits. At the moment of encountering them, fifteen, twenty, and thirty centuries before our era, in Aryan, Egyptian, or Chinese, they represent the work of a much greater number of centuries, perhaps the work of many myriads of centuries for as soon as an animal is born it must adapt itself to its surroundings it breathes in another way it renews itself differently it is otherwise stimulated according as the atmosphere the food and the temperature are different a different climate and situation create different necessities and hence activities of a different kind and hence again a system of different habits and finally a system of different aptitudes and instincts man thus compelled to put himself in equilibrium with circumstances, contracts a corresponding temperament and character, and his character, like his temperament, are acquisitions all the more stable because of the outward impression being more deeply imprinted in him by more frequent repetitions, and transmitted to his offspring by more ancient heredity. So that at each moment of time the character of a people may be considered as a summary of all antecedent actions and sensations. That is to say, as a quantity and as a weighty mass, not infinite, since all things in nature are limited, but disproportionate to the rest and almost impossible to raise, since each minute of an almost infinite past has contributed to render it heavier, and in order to turn the scale it would require on the other side a still greater accumulation of actions and sensations. Such is the first and most abundant source of these master faculties from which historic events are derived, and we see at once that if it is powerful, it is owing to its not being a mere source but a sort of lake and like a deep reservoir wherein other sources have poured their waters for a multitude of centuries when we have thus verified the internal structure of a race we must consider the environment in which it lives for man is not alone in the world nature envelops him and other men surround him accidental and secondary folds come and overspread the primitive and permanent fold while physical or social circumstances derange or complete the natural groundwork surrendered to them. At one time, climate has had its effect. Although the history of Aryan nations can be only obscurely traced from their common country to their final abodes, we can nevertheless affirm that the profound difference which is apparent between the Germanic races on the one hand and the Hellenic and Latin races on the other proceeds in great part from the differences between the countries in which they have established themselves, the former in cold and moist countries, in the depths of gloomy forests and swamps or on the borders of a wild ocean confined to melancholic or rude sensations inclined to drunkenness and gross feeding leading a militant and carnivorous life the latter on the contrary living amidst the finest scenery alongside of a brilliant sparkling sea inviting navigation and commerce exempt from the grosser cravings of the stomach disposed at the start to social habits and customs to political organization to the sentiments and faculties which develop the art of speaking, the capacity for enjoyment and invention in the sciences, in art and in literature. At another time, political events have operated, as in the two Italian civilizations, the first one tending wholly to action, to conquest, to government and to legislation, through the primitive situation of a city of refuge, a frontier emporium, and of an armed aristocracy, which, importing and enrolling foreigners and the vanquished under it, sets two hostile bodies facing each other, with no outlet for its internal troubles and rapacious instincts, but systematic warfare. The second one, excluded from unity and political ambition on a grand scale by the permanency of its municipal system, by the cosmopolite situation of its pope, and by the military intervention of neighboring states, and following the bent of its magnificent and harmonious genius, is wholly carried over to the worship of voluptuousness and beauty." Finally, at another time, social conditions have imposed their stamp, as eighteen centuries ago by Christianity, and twenty-five centuries ago by Buddhism, when around the Mediterranean as in Hindustan, the extreme effects of Aryan conquest and organization led to intolerable oppression, the crushing of the individual, utter despair, the whole world under the ban of a curse, with the development of metaphysics and visions, until man, in this dungeon of despondency, feeling his heart melt conceived of abnegation, charity, tender love, gentleness, humility, human brotherhood, here in the idea of universal nothingness and there under that of the fatherhood of God. Look around at the regulative instincts and faculties implanted in a race. In brief, the turn of mind according to which it thinks and acts at the present day. We shall find most frequently that its work is due to one of these prolonged situations, to these enveloping circumstances. To these persistent gigantic pressures brought to bear on a mass of men who one by one and all collectively from one generation to another have been unceasingly bent and fashioned by them in spain a crusade of eight centuries against the mohammedans prolonged yet longer even to the exhaustion of the nation through the expulsion of the moors through the spoliation of the jews through the establishment of the inquisition through the catholic wars in england a political establishment of eight centuries which maintains man erect and respectful independent and obedient all accustomed to struggling together in a body under the sanction of law in france a latin organization which at first imposed on docile barbarians then leveled to the ground under the universal demolition forms itself anew under the latent workings of a national instinct developing under hereditary monarchs and ending in a sort of equalized centralized administrative republic under dynasties exposed to revolutions such are the most efficacious among the observable causes which mould the primitive man they are to nations what education pursuit condition and abode are to individuals and seem to comprise all since the external forces which fashion human matter and by which the outward acts on the inward are comprehended in them there is nevertheless a third order of causes for with the forces within and without there is the work these have already produced together which work itself contributes toward producing the ensuing work beside the permanent impulsion and the given environment there is the acquired momentum when national character and surrounding circumstances operate it is not on a tabula rasa but on one already bearing imprints according as this tabula is taken at one or at another moment so is the imprint different and this suffices to render the total effect different. Consider for example two moments of literature or of an art, French tragedy under Corneille and under Voltaire, and Greek drama under Aeschylus and under Euripides, Latin poetry under Lucretius and under Claudian, and Italian painting under da Vinci and under Guido. Assuredly, there is no change of general conception at either of these two extreme points, ever the same human type must be portrayed or represented in action, the cast of the verse, the dramatic structure, the physical form have all persisted. But there is this among these differences, that one of the artists is a precursor, and the other a successor, that the first one has no model, and the second one has a model, that the former sees things face to face, and that the latter sees them through the intermediation of the former, that many departments of art have become more perfect, that the simplicity and grandeur of the impression have diminished, that what is pleasing and refined in form has augmented in short that the first work has determined the second in this respect it is with a people as with a plant the same sap at the same temperature and in the same soil produces at different stages of its successive elaborations different developments buds flowers fruits and seeds in such a way that the condition of the following is always that of the preceding and is born out of its death now if you no longer regard a brief moment as above, but one of those grand periods of development which embraces one or many centuries, like the Middle Ages, or our last classic period, the conclusion is the same. A certain dominating conception has prevailed throughout. Mankind, during two hundred years, during five hundred years, have represented to themselves a certain ideal figure of man, in medieval times the knight and the monk, in our classic period the courtier and the refined talker. This creative and universal conception has monopolized the entire field of action and thought, and after spreading its involuntary systematic works over the world, it languished and then died out, and now a new idea has arisen, destined to a like domination and to equally multiplied creations. Note here that the latter depends in part on the former, and that it is the former which, combining its effect with those of national genius and surrounding circumstances, will impose their bent and their direction on new-born things. It is according to this law that great historic currents are formed meaning by this the long rule of a form of intellect or of a master idea like that period of spontaneous creation called the renaissance or that period of oratorical classifications called the classic age or that series of mystic systems called the alexandrian and christian epoch or that series of mythological efflorescences found at the origins of german india and greece here as elsewhere we are dealing merely with a mechanical problem the total effect is a compound wholly determined by the grandeur and direction of the forces which produce it. The sole difference which separates these moral problems from physical problems lies in this, that in the former, the directions and grandeur cannot be estimated by or stated in figures with the same precision as in the latter. If a want, a faculty, is a quantity capable of degrees, the same as pressure or weight, this quantity is not measurable like that of the pressure or weight we cannot fix it in an exact or approximative formula we can obtain or give of it only a literary impression we are reduced to nothing and citing the prominent facts which make it manifest and which nearly or roughly indicate about what grade on the scale it must be ranged at and yet notwithstanding the methods of notation are not the same in the moral sciences as in the physical sciences nevertheless as matter is the same in both and is equally composed of forces directions and magnitudes we can still show that in one as in the other the final effect takes place according to the same law this is great or small according as the fundamental forces are great or small and act more or less precisely in the same sense according as the distinct effects of race environment and epoch combine to enforce each other or combine to neutralize each other thus are explained the long impotences and the brilliant successes which appear irregularly and with no apparent reason in the life of a people the causes of these consist in internal concordances and contrarieties. There was one of these concordances when, in the seventeenth century, the social disposition and conversational spirit innate in France encountered drawing-room formalities and the moment of oratorical analysis, when, in the nineteenth century, the flexible, profound genius of Germany encountered the age of philosophic synthesis and of cosmopolite criticism, one of these contrarieties happened when, in the seventeenth century, the blunt, isolated genius of England awkwardly tried to don the new polish of urbanity, and when, in the sixteenth century, the lucid, prosaic French intellect tried to gestate a living poesy. It is this secret concordance of creative forces which produced the exquisite courtesy and noble cast of literature under Louis the Fourteenth, and Bossuet, and the grandiose metaphysics and broad critical sympathy under Hegel and Goethe it is this secret contrariety of creative forces which produce the literary incompleteness the licentious plays the abortive drama of dryden and wycherley the poor greek importations the gropings the minute beauties and fragments of ronsard and the pleiad we may confidently affirm that the unknown creations toward which the current of coming ages is bearing up will spring from and be governed by these primordial forces that if these forces could be measured and computed we might deduce from them, as from a formula, the characters of future civilization, and that if, notwithstanding the evident rudeness of our notations, and the fundamental inexactitude of our measures, we would nowadays form some idea of our general destinies, we must base our conjectures on an examination of these forces. For, in enumerating them, we run through the full circle of active forces, and when the race, the environment, and the moment have been considered, that is to say, the inner mainspring, the pressure from without, and the impulsion already acquired, we have exhausted not only all real causes, but against all possible causes of movement. 6. There remains to be ascertained in what way these causes, applied to a nation or to a century, distribute their effects. Like a spring issuing from an elevated spot and diffusing its waters, according to the height from ledge to ledge until it finally reaches the low ground, so does the tendency of mind or soul in a people, due to race, epoch, or environment, diffuse itself in different proportions, and by regular descent over the different series of facts which compose its civilization. In preparing the geographical map of a country, starting at its watershed, we see the slopes, just below this common point, dividing themselves into five or six principal basins, and then each of the latter into several others, and so on until the whole country with its thousands of inequalities of surface, is included in the ramifications of this network. In like manner, in preparing the psychological map of the events and sentiments belonging to a certain human civilization, we find at the start five or six well-determined provinces, religion, art, philosophy, the state, the family, and industries. Next, in each of these provinces, natural departments, and then finally, in each of these departments, still smaller territories, until we arrive at those countless details of life which we observe daily in ourselves and around us. If again we examine and compare together these various groups of facts, we at once find that they are composed of parts, and that all have parts in common. Let us take, first, the three principal products of human intelligence—religion, art, and philosophy. What is a philosophy but a conception of nature, and of its primordial causes, under the form of abstractions and formulas? What underlies a religion and an art, if not a conception of this same nature? and of these same primordial causes, under the form of more or less determinate symbols, and of more or less distinct personages, with this difference, that in the first case we believe that they exist, and in the second case that they do not exist. Let the reader consider some of the great creations of the intellect in India, in Scandinavia, in Persia, in Rome, in Greece, and he will find that art everywhere is a sort of philosophy becomes sensible, religion, a sort of poem regarded as true, and philosophy, a sort of art and religion, desiccated and reduced to pure abstractions. There is, then, in the center of the, each of these groups a common element, the conception of the world and its origin, and if they differ amongst each other it is because each combines with the common element a distinct element. Here the power of abstraction, there are the faculty of personifying with belief, and finally the talent for personifying without belief. Let us now take the two leading products of human association, the family and the state, what constitutes the state other than the sentiment of obedience by which a multitude of men collect together under the authority of a chief? And what constitutes the family other than the sentiment of obedience by which a wife and children act together under the direction of a father and husband? The family is a natural, primitive, limited state, as the state is an artificial, ulterior, and expanded family while beneath the differences which arise from the number, origin, and condition of its members, we distinguish in the small as in the large community a like fundamental disposition of mind which brings them together and unites them. Suppose now that this common element receives from the environment, the epoch, and the race peculiar characteristics, and it is clear that all the groups into which it enters will be proportionately modified. If the sentiment of obedience is merely one of fear, you encounter, as in most of the Oriental states, the brutality of despotism, a prodigality of vigorous punishments, the exploitation of the subject, servile habits, insecurity of property, impoverished production, female slavery, and the customs of the harem. If the sentiment of obedience is rooted in the instinct of discipline, sociability, and honor, you find, as in France, a complete military organization, a superb administrative hierarchy, a weak public spirit with outbursts of patriotism, the unhesitating docility of the subject, along with the hot headedness of the revolutionist, the obsequiousness of the courtier, along with the reserve of the gentleman, the charm of a refined conversation, along with the home and family bickerings, conjugal equality, together with matrimonial incompatibilities, under the necessary constraints of the law. If, finally, the sentiment of obedience is rooted in the instinct of subordination and in the idea of duty, you perceive, as in a Germanic nations, the security and contentment of the household, the firm foundations of domestic life, the slow and imperfect development of world matters, innate respect for established rank, superstitious reverence for the past, maintenance of social inequalities, natural and habitual deference to the law. Similarly in a race, just as there is a difference of aptitude for general ideas, so will its religion, art, and philosophy be different if man is naturally fitted for broader, universal conceptions, and inclined at the same time to their derangement, through the nervous irritability of an over-excited organization, we find, as in India, a surprising richness of gigantic religious creations, a splendid bloom of extravagant transparent epics, a strange concatenation of subtle, imaginative philosophic systems, all so intimately associated and so interpenetrated with a common sap, that we at once recognize them by their amplitude, by their color, and by their disorder as productions of the same climate and of the same spirit if on the contrary the naturally sound and well-balanced man is content to restrict his conceptions to narrow bounds in order to cast them in more precise forms we see as in greece a theology of artists and narrators special gods that are soon separated from objects and almost transformed at once into substantial personages the sentiment of its universal unity nearly effaced and scarcely maintained in the vague notion of destiny a philosophy, rather than subtle and compact, grandiose and systematic, narrowly metaphysically, but incomparable in its logic, sophistry, and morality, a poesy and arts superior to anything we have seen in lucidity, naturalness, proportion, truth, and beauty. Footnote. The birth of the Alexandrian philosophy is due to contact with the Orient. Aristotle's metaphysical views stand alone. Moreover, with him as with Plato, they afford a mere glimpse. By way of contrast, see systematic power in Plotinus, Proclus, Schelling, and Hegel, or again in the admirable boldness of Brahmanic and Buddhist speculation. End of footnote. If finally man is reduced to narrow conceptions deprived of any speculative subtlety, and at the same time finds that he is absorbed and completely hardened by practical interests, we see as in Rome, rudimentary deities, mere empty names, good for denoting the petty details of agriculture, generation, and the household, veritable marriage and farming labels, and therefore a null or borrowed mythology, philosophy, and poesy. Here, as elsewhere, comes in the law of mutual dependencies. A civilization is a living unit, the parts of which hold together the same as the parts of an organic body. Just as in an animal, the instincts, teeth, limbs bones and muscular apparatus are bound together in such a way that a variation of one determines a corresponding variation in the others and out of which a skillful naturalist with a few bits imagines and reconstructs an almost complete body so in a civilization do religion philosophy the family scheme literature and the arts form a system in which each local change involves a general change so that an experienced historian who studies one portion apart from the others sees beforehand and partially predicts the characteristics of the rest there is nothing vague in this dependence the regulation of all this in the living body consists first of the tendency to manifest a certain primordial type and next the necessity of its possessing organs which can supply its wants and put itself in harmony with itself in order to live the regulation in a civilization consists in the presence in each great human creation of an elementary productor equally present in other surrounding creations that is, some faculty and aptitude, some efficient and marked disposition, which, with its own peculiar character, introduces this with that into all operations in which it takes part, and which, according to its variations, causes variations in all the works in which it cooperates. 7. Having reached this point, we can obtain a glimpse of the principal features of human transformations, and can now search for the general laws which regulate not only events, but classes of events, not only this religion or that literature, but the whole group of religions or of literatures. If, for example, it is admitted that a religion is a metaphysical poem associated with belief, if it is recognized besides that there are certain races and certain environments in which belief, poetic faculty, and metaphysical faculty display themselves in common with unwanted vigor, if we consider that christianity and buddhism were developed at periods of grand systematizations and in the midst of sufferings like the oppression which stirred up the fanatics of seven if on the other hand it is recognized that primitive religions are born at the dawn of human reason during the richest expansion of human imagination at times of the greatest naivete and of the greatest credulity if we consider again that mohammedanism appeared along with the advent of poetic prose and of the conception of material unity amongst a people destitute of science and at the moment of a sudden development of the intellect we might conclude that religion is born and declines is reformed and transformed according as circumstances fortify and bring together with more or less precision and energy its three generative instincts and we would then comprehend why religion is endemic in india among specially exalted imaginative and philosophic intellects why it blooms out so wonderfully and so grandly in the middle ages in an oppressive society amongst new languages and literature, why it develops again in the sixteenth century with a new character and an heroic enthusiasm, at the time of a universal renaissance and at the awakening of the Germanic races, why it swarms out in so many bizarre sects in the rude democracy of America and under the bureaucratic despotism of Russia, why, in fine, it is seen spreading out in the Europe of today in such different proportions and with such special traits according to such differences of race and of civilizations. And so for every kind of human production—for letters, music, the arts of design, philosophy, the sciences, state industries, and the rest—each has some moral tendency for its direct cause, or a concurrence of moral tendencies. Given the cause, it appears. The cause withdrawn, it disappears. The weakness or intensity of the cause is the measure of its own weakness or intensity. It is bound to that, like any physical phenomenon to its condition, like dew to the chilliness of a surrounding atmosphere, like dilatation to heat. Couples exist in the moral world as they exist in the physical world, as rigorously linked together and as universally diffused. Whatever in one case produces, alters or suppresses the first term, produces, alters and suppresses the second term as a necessary consequence. Whatever cools the surrounding atmosphere causes the fall of dew. Whatever develops credulity, along with poetic conceptions of the universe, engenders religion. Thus have things come about, and thus will they continue to come about. As soon as the adequate and necessary condition of one of these vast apparitions becomes known to us, our mind has a hold on the future as well as on the past. We can confidently state under what circumstances it will reappear, foretell without rashness many portions of its future history, and sketch with precaution some of the traits of its ulterior development. 8. History has reached this point at the present day, or rather it is nearly there, on the threshold of this inquest. The question as now stated is this. Given a literature, a philosophy, a society, an art, a certain group of arts, what is the moral state of things which produces it? And what are the conditions of race, epoch, and environment the best adapted to produce this moral state? There is a distinct moral state for each of these formations, and for each of their branches. There is one art in general, as well for each particular art, for architecture, painting, sculpture, music, and poetry, each with a germ of its own in the large field of human psychology. Each has its own law, and it is by virtue of this law that we see each shoot up, apparently haphazard, singly and alone amidst the miscarriages of their neighbours, like painting in Flanders and Holland in the seventeenth century, like poetry in England in the sixteenth century like music in Germany in the eighteenth century. At this moment, and in these countries, the conditions for one art and not for the others are fulfilled, and one branch only has bloomed out amidst the general sterility. It is these laws of human vegetation which history must now search for, it is this special psychology of each special formation which must be got at, it is the composition of a complete table of these peculiar conditions that must now be worked out. There is nothing more delicate and nothing more difficult montesquieu undertook it but in his day the interest in history was too recent for him to be successful nobody indeed had any idea of the road that was to be followed and even at the present day we scarcely begin to obtain a glimpse of it just as astronomy at bottom is a mechanical problem and physiology likewise a chemical problem so is history at bottom a problem of psychology there is a particular system of inner impressions and operations which fashions the artist the believer the musician, the painter, the nomad, the social man. For each of these, the filiation, intensity, and interdependence of ideas and of emotions are different. Each has his own moral history, and his own special organization, along with some master tendency and with some dominant trait. To explain each of these would require a chapter devoted to a profound internal analysis, and that is a work that can scarcely be called sketched out at the present day. But one man, Stendhal, through a certain turn of mind and a peculiar education, has attempted it, and even yet most of his readers find his works paradoxical and obscure. His talent and ideas were too premature. His admirable insight, his profound sayings carelessly thrown out, the astonishing precision of his notes and logic were not understood. People were not aware that under the appearances and talk of a man of the world, he explained the most complex of internal mechanisms, that his finger touched the great mainspring, that he brought scientific processes to bear in the history of the heart, the art of employing figures, of decomposing, of deducing, that he was the first to point out fundamental causes such as nationalities, climates, and temperaments. In short, that he treated sentiments as they should be treated, that is to say, as a naturalist and physicist, by making classifications and estimating forces. On account of all this, he was pronounced dry and eccentric, and allowed to live in isolation, composing novels, books of travel, and taking notes, for which he counted upon and has obtained about a dozen or so of readers. And yet his works are those in which we of the present day may find the most satisfactory effects that have been made to clear the road I have just striven to describe. Nobody has taught one better how to observe with one's own eyes, first to regard humanity around us and life as it is, and next old and authentic documents, how to read more than merely the black and white of the page, how to detect under old print and the scrawl of the text the veritable sentiment and the train of thought, the mental state in which the words were penned. In his writings, as in those of Saint-Beuve and in those of the German critics, the reader will find how much is to be derived from a literary document, if this document is rich and we know how to interpret it. We will find in the psychology of a particular soul often that of an age and sometimes that of a race. In this respect a great poem, a good novel, the confessions of a superior man, are more instructive than a mass of historians and histories i would give fifty volumes of charters and a hundred diplomatic files for the memoirs of cellini the epistles of saint paul the table talk of luther or the comedies of aristophanes herein lies the value of literary productions they are instructive because they are beautiful their usefulness increases with their perfection and if they provide us with documents it is because they are monuments the more visible a book renders sentiments the more literary it is FOR IT IS THE SPECIAL OFFICE OF LITERATURE TO TAKE NOTE OF SENTIMENTS. THE MORE IMPORTANT THE SENTIMENTS NOTED IN A BOOK, THE HIGHER ITS RANK IN LITERATURE, FOR IT IS BY REPRESENTING WHAT SORT OF A LIFE A NATION OR AN EPOCH LEADS THAT A WRITER RALLIES TO HIMSELF THE SYMPATHIES OF A NATION OR OF AN EPOCH. HENCE, AMONG THE DOCUMENTS WHICH BRING BEFORE OUR EYES THE SENTIMENTS OF PRECEDING GENERATIONS, A LITERATURE, AND ESPECIALLY A GREAT LITERATURE, IS INCOMPARABLY THE BEST. It resembles those admirable instruments of remarkable sensitiveness which physicists make use of to detect and measure the most profound and delicate changes that occur in a human body there is nothing approaching this in constitutions or religions the articles of a code or of a catechism do no more than depict mind in gross and without finesse if there are any documents which show life and spirit in politics and in creeds they are the eloquent discourses of the pulpit and the tribune memoirs and personal confessions all belonging to literature, so that outside of itself literature embodies whatever is good elsewhere. It is mainly in studying literatures that we are able to produce moral history and arrive at some knowledge of the psychological laws on which events depend. I have undertaken to write a history of a literature and to ascertain the psychology of a people. In selecting this one, it is not without a motive. A people had to be taken possessing a vast and complete literature, which is rarely found. There are few nations which through their existence have thought and written well in the full sense of the word. Among the ancients, Latin literature is null at the beginning and afterward borrowed and in an imitation. Among the moderns, German literature is nearly a blank for two centuries. Italian and Spanish literatures come to an end in the middle of the seventeenth century. Ancient Greece and modern France and England alone offer a complete series of great and expressive monuments. I have chosen the English because, as this still exists and is open to direct observation, it can be better studied than that of an extinct civilization of which fragments only remain, and because, being different, it offers better than that of France very marked characteristics in the eyes of a Frenchman. Moreover, outside of what is peculiar to English civilization, apart from a spontaneous development, it presents a forced deviation due to the latest and most effective conquest to which the country was subject. The three given conditions out of which it issues race climate and the norman conquest are clearly and distinctly visible in its literary monuments so that we study in this history the two most potent motors of human transformation namely nature and constraint and we study them without any break or uncertainty in a series of authentic and complete monuments i have tried to define these primitive motors to show their gradual effects and explain how their insensible operation has brought religious and literary productions into full light, and how the inward mechanism is developed by which the barbarous Saxon became the Englishman of the present day. End of section thirty eight. End of prefaces and prologues to famous books by Charles W. Eliot.